Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. In this next episode, we talk with Vivian Dixon. Viv is a good friend who leads the recruiting or talent acquisition function for Chewy. I'm excited for you to hear Viv's story and how she's navigated her path. As you listen in on this discussion, you will get meaningful and fantastic advice from a professional with over 20 years of experience leading recruiting functions for several Fortune 500 companies. We talk resume writing, job hunting, and interviewing. In addition to this great advice, through Vivian's stories and examples, we have access to a leader who's able to translate life lessons and experiences in a way that's easy to understand. Grab a pen and paper for note-taking and enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been hunting you. you and chasing you for at least a year and a half, I think, to have you join me on this podcast. So I finally won out. And I yeah. my persistence, we talk about persistence and resilience on here. And I feel like it's it's a little check mark in my win column to finally get you on here, Vivian. So thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited about chatting with you today. We've uh, known each other for a long time and we're introduced by a mutual friend who um, I think sh she always talked about you. My friend Sue always talked about you and said, oh my gosh, you are the same people really. So you have to meet your, your like personalities and your energy. It's just so... And I don't know, I, I can edit this out, but she's always said, she's a Black Teresa. <laughs> I'm like, look at that, what I learned today. I know, I know. <laughs> um, and it's just so funny. And then you meet, the, it's so funny when you hear about someone and then you meet and I was like, oh my gosh, we really did have to meet because you you really are one of my favorite people. I love um, talking with you and hanging out with you. And um, and you've been very supportive of me in prior uh, roles and, and kind of working through stuff. So thank you again for being on here. I really appreciate it. Ta oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure just um, going through the journey with you to get here. So I'm excited to get yeah. it off the ground. Good. Let me know a little bit about your current role and what you do. The, the one thing that I think is so great about you being part of this conversation and on our podcast is that this is very much focused on development for people as they're working through career and life navigation. That's kind of very simply put how I would how I would characterize it. And your type of work is so directly connected to that. And so I know that there's going to be a lot of great information, nuggets, advice, you know, shared just based on all of your years of experience. So I'm super excited for people to get to meet you and hear from you. Awesome. Thank you. I'm delighted to share, you know, what I've found in my role as a leader in talent acquisition is that there's often a misunderstanding from candidates on how to navigate just the job search process and how to navigate getting into companies. And when I am able to share with them how they should really think about it, a light bulb goes off. And so I'm happy to share those tips today. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about your current role. So I am the leader of talent acquisition for Chewy. I've been here for eight months. It's been an awesome ride. And I lead a great team of talent acquisition professionals we support hiring everything from campus hiring through executive hiring. And I am now based in Florida, which has been a change for me, but it's been an awesome change and work directly with the leadership team on building the business. And it's been really fun. And in terms of your path, this is on the smaller side for you, right? In terms of organizations, the reason I asked that, I see you nodding, but the, um, you know, is this your first time going, and I, people are like 16,000 is not small, but when you think of your career, you know, we both worked in professional services and other big, big companies that have, I mean, they're small countries, right? They're just huge. So is this your first time going into a smaller company or have you done that before? Uh, it is one of the smaller organizations I've been in. You know, in, earlier in my career, I was a part of other organizations that were just starting or about this size, but that was about 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's been a little while. 
Do you like being back in the build phase? Oh gosh, yes. It's actually my favorite part. Yeah. I, for me, building and rebuilding is what I love to do. And so to have that opportunity to build from scratch, have that creative license, it's actually a ton of fun for me. So I'm like a kid in the candy store in that regard yeah. because I can create and shape and really guide um, the team on things that I know will work well and frankly avoid some of those landmines that I know won't work at all. And are you someone who, I'm curious, uh, Chewy, because I know you have been in other roles, but are how do you feel in terms of being at the table and being able to make decisions and drive strategy. Tell me a bit about that and how that's working for you. Actually, it's, it's a great opportunity to really build a business. Um, what I've found as a leader in TA, and we, we say TA um, as short for talent acquisition, is that many uh, who are not intimate with the function do not realize that it is a business in itself. TA is a business, right? We have quality, we have speed factors, we've got operations, there is math, there are numbers, there are metrics, and there are also relationships, right? And you're looking at balancing all of those things to drive the business. And so for me, uh, having that opportunity to shape that business with the leadership team, being a part of that strategic decision-making, and it's not just about recruiting, right? It's about making good decisions for the company and how the hiring of talent embeds within that broader strategy. So I am thankful that our leadership team not only offers an opportunity at the table for it, but frankly, they expect it. Yeah, They expect me to come in and have a point of view and help drive what the future of hiring and acquiring great talent looks like. And so in a lot of ways, it's super refreshing and it's also fun. It's, it's fun, right? It's fun to build and it's fun to grow. It's interesting. I, I, I started my career in recruiting. I actually started in campus recruiting and then moved into a like a one to one. I don't know if I ever did a lot of experience. I think I spent a lot of time in campus before I moved into, I didn't know that. into ER. Yeah. You know, I found with that role, and that was a long, long time ago, uh, in that you're like, you can be, everybody loves you when times are good and there's lots of money and they want you to push and hire and there's never you know they love you and they need you and they want you and there's a lot of like good strokes right and then when when invariably this happens there's tightness in the market or the economy and purse strings get you know tightened then recruiting you have to sort of morph and change quickly and then you become less like a hero and more of a hindrance and how do you, you have to keep us alive in a different way. I think with talent acquisition sort of slash recruiting for people that are used to kind of the older terminology, they really don't have that view of what it really is and what it entails. And it just is this idea like, oh, it's just getting butts and seats. And it's so much more than that. Um, and to your point around everything you described, I feel like it's such, it's a good opportunity for us to help people understand like it, what kind of business function it is. Uh, yes, and, and and like you said, I've been through all of those scenarios, yeah. right? I've been through the hyper growth of an organization. I've been through the contraction of an organization. I've been through a bankruptcy of an organization. I've been through a split of an organization, right? So I call it the makeup stage, the breakup stage, right? I've been through all of those phases and um, the growing up phase. And in each one, you know, the levers that you pull and how you actually achieve your hiring goals varies yeah. and the type of uh, metrics and measures that you have to really drill into also vary. And so I'm thankful to be able to share that playbook with my team here at Chewy and frankly, give them that to use as they grow in their careers as well. Yeah. I will ask you here shortly about your sage wisdom, because I think our audience would be frustrated with me if I didn't tap into this great resource when we talk about some interviewing skills and job seeking skills and things like that. It, I would, I, I'd like to start first just by asking you, how did you end up working in recruiting or talent acquisition? And is this something that has always been, you knew that you wanted to do? Oh gosh, great question. So. I'll tell you a true story. I graduated from college. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I told my mother that I was finding myself 
And you can imagine having paid for a college education. She was like, wait a minute, are you lost or something? Like what is going on here? She, she was not tickled by my comment of finding myself. And um, actually it was early in my days, I worked at Capital One and I was working in the call center as a call center manager and speaking with my leader about what I was passionate about and what I love to do. And she was the one who actually turned me on to what about recruiting? Mm. So I candidly did not think of it as a profession, did not anticipate that as where my path would go. And one thing led to another and I moved and transferred internally into a recruiting role and I've been doing it for 23 years. And so I was thankful that I was able to find my passion because it is a blend of everything I like to do. I like working with people. I like numbers. I like math. Uh, my team knows that I live with my calculator, be it on my phone, desktop, or my computer. I'm always calculating, you know, metrics, measures, um, inputs and outputs. And so for me, um, like many people in recruiting, they stumble upon it in some way. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled upon it pretty early in my career and I've been in it for quite a while. What was your degree? I was actually a political science major okay. at the College of William & Mary. Okay. Aww. I did a, that's where I did a ton of campus recruiting. Was that what you mean? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I loved it. I loved the career center there. And there was such a kind woman. Her name was like Pat somebody. Uh, she was awesome at William and Mary. So, okay. So now you're, um, you found your passion and you're excitedly working in acquisition. And tell me about, it's funny what I, what's kind of coming to mind right now. It's like, cause I'm, I'm actually doing some writing right now and I'm doing some writing about interviewing. And I just, I just did a canvas people around their worst, uh, interview experience, either themselves or interviewing someone else. And boy, did I get like immediate response and, um, <laughs> a lot of awesome stories, frankly, so, uh, cause everyone has one, right? Either you yourself or, um, you know, when you're the interviewer, they're just amazing what can happen for people that are interviewing right now, for people that are, let's maybe start there. And what are some thoughts that you have around the skill of interviewing or tips or what you think people, if you had to boil it down to, to three tips, what would you say? Oh gosh, good question. If you don't mind, Teresa, I'll take it a step back before even landing the interview. Sure. Because I think sometimes half the battle is landing the interview. Sure. And I find what people's misconceptions are is that it is actually even before they get to that interview process. So here are a couple of quick tips. One is the resume should reflect what you do without a conversation. So the biggest mistake that people make is that they expect that the resume is a teaser, almost like a tweet. Like, here's a teaser of what I do and call me and I'll give you all the goodness of what I bring to the table, what my strengths are and how to synthesize all of my background. And through that conversation, I'll help you understand. And then we'll then determine what the best job is. That is not how companies consume talent. Mm -hmm. The way they consume talent is they look at the resume and they say, is this person a good fit for this role that I have open or for another? And it has to be based on the writing of what's on the document. And so I, I'll tell you, I've got true stories of family and friends and friends of friends that I have often taken the red pen. I've told them, I do this for a living. I've been doing this for 20 years. Bear with me as I you know, go and ask you a ton of questions and help you make this resume better. And I will ask questions of them that they feel is frankly clear as day on the resume. And I'll share with them, do you realize there's no keyword on here of your international experience? Do you realize there's no indicator on here of the size of team you've managed? Do you realize that there's no indication on here you've ever managed a PL? And so things that may come intuitive to the person because they do it all day, they candidates can sometimes neglect to put it on paper and they expect, well, Teresa's going to call me and then I'll get to explain it to her. Well, they'll never get the phone call if it's not properly documented on the resume. So uh, my biggest tip is to ensure that if there's any job that you're interested in, ensure that the resume and the job, there is a, there is a noticeable match. Uh, another mistake that candidates make is that they believe that the company should hire them for their 
smarts potential or capability to learn to do a job. That's another common error, right? And, and here's the best analogy I give you. If your car is broken down, you want a mechanic to fix the car, right? If you're gonna organize an awesome dinner party with your friends and family, you're probably going to hire a professional chef. You're not gonna hire the chef to fix your car. You're not gonna hire the mechanic to fix your dinner. And while the mechanic may be a great chef and the chef may be a great mechanic, that's probably not how you're going to buy that service, right? And so as candidates go out and they pursue a role, they might want a change in career, but if they don't translate on their resume, how they're moving, for example, from an analyst position to say a creative marketing role, and they don't translate that for the reader, then their resume isn't going to get picked up and they're gonna to continue to get frustrated. It's such a simple descriptor of what goes wrong, but it is a big, big misconception of how to apply for a job when it's either something in your lane or outside of your lane, because candidates expect somebody is going to call me and I'll explain myself. Yeah, and I would say too, this is something I tell people and you can tell me if I'm giving bad advice, but if, it's, if you have a job requisition and there is information in that job requisition about the job, your experience should connect to that requisition and that language should be similar, yet your experience should reflect what you've done in those dimensions, right? And so it just shocks me that people, it's a—it's almost like you have the blueprint right there in terms of being able to customize and, and cultivate that resume for that role. And yet people blow past it and don't seem to make those connections. Well, I think that the natural human response is once I speak to you and I share with you what I've done, then you'll understand why there's a fit. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is unfortunately, many times candidates feel like they fall into a black hole. No one has contacted, no one has called. And there've been many instances where, you know, you know, friends or family have asked me to help. And I've looked at resumes and I said, I'm not surprised. You're not getting any phone call. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell from this resume what you do. Right. Like it's that simple, right? If you were to put your resume in front of someone who's never met you and anyone can do this, right? And say, what do I do for a living? If they can't explain it, then it, the resume is probably not written the best. Agree. And I feel like people do not want to spend the time up front. Like they think it's ancillary. And to your, what you're saying, I think is that it's not. And that if you invest time up front and really put that work in to make it reflect what you can do that's is what's going to help you yeah and i would actually say it a little bit differently Teresa. i don't know if that people don't want to i don't think they understand how to mm -hmm. and so as a result the level of effort on it is based on their lens of what they believe is important versus realizing <clears throat> i need to showcase accomplishments not duties i need to showcase what my superpowers are on a resume, not every single thing that I do. And so being able to package someone's, you know, your, your own background in a way that you show, this is what I'm great at in these markets, in these industries, in these circumstances, and to not be apologetic about what is your gift and what is your superpower and actually acknowledge when a skill or an area is not in your length. Right. Yeah. Hiring managers actually truly appreciate when someone says, I'm really good at X, Y, Z. And you know what? If you need one, two, three, I'd have to leverage a peer or an outside source because it's not my sweet spot. And that's actually better to be upfront about those things, because that way you're not going into a job that frankly isn't a fit for you and therefore potentially puts you in a position where you're not going to perform at your best. What um, do you have any? resources for people in terms of resume writing or where they can look what's a good place to go for people to help get that right you know that's a great question you know there's tons of job boards out there i don't think any one is better than the other what i would suggest is grab a resume of someone else that you like and that stands out to you mm -hmm. 
And I would also say, grab a job description that stands out to you and says, you know what? This is speaking to my background in a much clearer way than potentially I was describing it. The common mistakes that candidates make again is that they will list duties and not accomplishments. So you may have been responsible for leading a team of five people, but what did those five people do and for how long and what was the impact of that responsibility? So showing accomplishments, impact, breadth and depth of experience on the resume. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, was your work impacting a local department, cross departments, cross teams? Was it impacting, say, within one state, multiple states, multiple countries, right? Is it impacting dollars of $50,000, $5 million, $50 million? So having that additional context is helpful. Yeah, yeah. Qualifying and quantifying, right? The, the results, yes. absolutely. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates, your one-stop shop for soft skills development, speaking, coaching, and workshops. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.teresafreemanassociates.com for more information. Okay, what about, so you talk about the resume. I think the two other areas would be the actual like job seeking and then some interview tips. What do you have? Yes. You have some thoughts For there? job seeking, uh, I know we hear this often, but networking is key. It truly is key. And here's why. Someone within your network can help you identify whether or not you are a fit for a company or not. All of us are not a fit for every company out there. And so it's best for someone in your network to tell you, you know what, based on what I know about you and your strengths and what you're great at, this may not be the best fit for you and let me explain why. And having that early indicator is helpful as a candidate because you're not wasting your time. And frankly, you may be interested in the company and the company is interested in you, but you may not actually thrive in that organization. And so why join a company when you know you're not gonna thrive? So leveraging that network is important. Uh, it's also important to get more visibility on a resume. So someone internal to the company who says, hi, I know Teresa, I've worked with Teresa, consider Teresa, that endorsement is helpful. Right. And it brings color to the resume and, and, and puts more eyes on it. So networking is absolutely key. I also share with candidates as they're on for a new job search to be very targeted in what they want. So not just say, hey, I need a job, any job, and I can appreciate in these tough times, right? Yeah. Money matters. I, I don't want to underestimate the importance of a job. Uh, what I would suggest though is once you know the type of job, the type of company, exactly the role that you want, I firmly believe in the law of attraction. When you're crystal clear about what you want and how you want to get there, you will start to communicate that to your colleagues in the interview process, to your friends, to your peers. And then that role will surface itself, right? And so being very specific in what you want, I want to be a marketing and, you know, a, a marketing specialist. I want to be a software engineer for a growing company. Being that definitive mm -hmm. is helpful because now you know what you're going after and you don't get distracted by other types of jobs and other types of searches. That's such great advice. I had an experience the other day where someone had called me for a completely different reason, someone in my network that I haven't talked to in a long time. And we were just talking about my business and we were just talking about lots of different things. And I, I had just done my goals for 2021. And one of my goals is that I, I want to do a lot more coaching. I love the coaching space. I feel like that's where a lot of my strengths are. And so I just started talking. She's like, oh my gosh, I have the perfect person for you to start working with. And just by that, putting that intention out there, again, not, it's so interesting how things happen, not the way that you think they will. So being open, being communicative, it, you're, you'd be surprised how things can evolve and shape from there. Yes. And, and frankly, it saves time, right? Yeah. The job search is so stressful. Yeah. It's highly time consuming. And you know, imagine that through your network, you're able to just save a lot more time with more precision, finding the right role for you. Yeah. I'll tell you early in my career, I was naive about this. 
I remember, look, it was such a naive way of thinking. I remember saying to myself, I'm not using my dad's contacts. I'm not mm -hmm. using my family contacts. I'm doing this on my own by myself. Yep. I'm a big girl. I've graduated from college. I'm also a Gen Xer, right? I'm, I'm from the parents just don't understand generation, right? So I said to myself, I don't need them. I've got this. Listen, very naive way of thinking. Isn't it? <laughs> and yeah. I worked harder to get to where I wanted to as a result. And now looking back, the power of the network, um, everyone is willing to help make an introduction. And so, you know, no one should think of, oh, I'm inconveniencing another person. Most people are willing to make that introduction or to say to you, you know, I don't think this is for you and here's why. Yeah. And again, it's just a huge time saver. One thing I want to ask you, just felt there's a philosophical question here about the resilience of pushing through when you get no. And even let's just say you're super clear and you're manifesting and you're to your point, like you're doing the law of attraction thing and you've like you're targeted and you're doing all these things that you're saying and it's still not coming to fruition. What's your response to that? I mean, you maybe have been in that position yourself personally at some point, but I'm sure you hear that a lot given the role that you've had in these organizations. Yes, no, great question. As an insider reading, excuse me, leading a talent acquisition team and having done it for years and years and years, here's a couple things that I think about. One is there's so many reason why, reasons why someone else may have gotten hired. An internal may have been identified. There may have been a reorganization. There may have been someone that identified as a stronger fit for multiple reasons. And so my suggestion is one, not to put all eggs in one basket. So if you're looking for roles, have as, as much as you can, of course, control, have multiple opportunities in queue, recognizing that there are multiple reasons why things could go in another direction. If you have not been selected for a role, I would do two things. One is I would ask the organization for feedback. Uh, some companies are willing to give it, some are not. But if you are fortunate to get some feedback and ask that recruiter, then even if it's one little nugget of information, right. that feedback is a gift, right? It's truly a gift. Uh, the second thing I would do is also really be reflective on, did I communicate my role, my impact, and the problem that I solved and how? And here's why I say that. Sometimes mistakes that candidates make in interviews is that they speak in the terms of we, 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 we. And while um, it def definitely takes a team to get things done, if it is hard to decipher what the candidate themselves did and what their role was in every situation in an authentic way, then it's hard to see what, what am I getting out of this particular type of candidate. And so, you know, we, each person will not always be the leader or the main point person in every example. So you're not expected to be a hero in every situation that you share, but it's, it's important to share and communicate what did I do? What actions did I take? What was my thought process? What were the pros and cons that I weighed? What were the factors that I considered? What was the data that I incorporated? And ultimately, what are the results? Right. Particularly, the more senior you are, the more complex the problems become. And there should be more data and more stakeholders as a part of that answer. So if the candidate communicates that something was like what perceived to be pretty easy to do without a lot of buy-in, it's actually not practical and it's not real. And so paint a realistic picture and then show how you navigated through that picture. Yeah. So you're saying on the resilience side or why you didn't get it, there's the variables that you don't know and you can't control. And then there's the one that you can and you do, and that's you. <laughs> and being smart about your own accomplishments, results, being able to articulate that effectively and going deep on things is really going to put you in the best position to get it. That's, that's what yes. I heard you say, yeah? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely <clears throat> spot on. And I think one, one extra nugget there is that 
if you were not selected for a job, don't take it as a failed interview. It may very well be that you are not a great fit for that organization. While it's hard, a hard pill to swallow, frankly, it's better to know before you get hired and then get into the job and realize you're not a great fit. Absolutely. And so that is sometimes some of the hardest things or one of the hardest things, excuse me, to um, accept is that I may not actually be a cultural fit for a company. And I've been in organizations where I wasn't a cultural fit and it was not a fun day, right? right? It was not, it was not a fun time because you're, you're walking into a situation where the people, the work may be great, but the culture may not be for you. And that's environmentally not a healthy thing to be in either. It's so true. And I feel like um, one of my, one of my roles early on, not early on, I probably was maybe eight years in or something at one of the bigger professional services organizations, they were going through like a reorg. Someone bought them. I don't know. I can't really remember the specifics, but my, it was my first time of like getting that conversation. Like your job's probably going away. And so, you know, we're going to talk about some options of, of trying to figure out what you can do either here, but ultimately you may have to leave. And something happens when that when you get put in that position like i have this phrase that i steal from the dow steve the movie all the time we pursue that which re, which retreats from us i so believe that philosophy that like the more you want something the harder you push the more you know the further it gets from you in some ways if it's not the kind of the right balance the right thing to your point around culture and people would say to me throughout my career like maybe not just think about the money and think about the title and think about the company, right? It's really, what is the experience that you want? What is the culture that you want? And I still fight that to some extent because I think of how I was groomed in in professional service. It's like, you're not really taught to think that way. And when I've made decisions based on that, it's a much better experience. It's It's much more fulfilling. So that piece I think is so important and to not ignore it for sure. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. And I've been asked before, you know, thoughts on you know, different job opportunities as people were contemplating right. accepting a role and all things created equal. If you're comparing the work, the money, the organization, your leader, at the end of the day, most people can live with less money if they're enjoying the work and the person they're working for. Yep. And so I usually start asking questions about, tell me about the leader you're working for and why are you going to work for that leader? And if that leader were to change, would you mm. still be in a good place? Cause you could start tomorrow and there's a reorganization or the leader leaves. So if that leader were to leave, then is it still the right role for you? And again, money matters, but it's not typically the top factor. Right, right. Oh, it's so good. I'm getting like little uh, like goosebumps as you're talking because I feel like it's such great advice. So we talked a little bit about being prepared. We've talked a bit about knowing your experience and results and being able to communicate that. I think there's some obvious stuff on the interview front, which is just the basics. Show up, look presentable. <laughs> you know, my big thing on interviewing is answer the question that's being asked. It's, it seems so obvious, yet people can't seem to do it. They hear you ask a question and they think of it as an opportunity to say what they want to say about some other accomplishment that has nothing to do with that question. So I think that's a big one. What else from your perspective have you seen happen uh, that you think might be helpful as people are entering the job hunt space or interviewing? I would offer a framework of uh, three top things. Okay. Uh, number one is prepare, prepare, prepare. Uh -huh. Don't underestimate the importance. Look, I've been doing this for 20 something years. And before an interview, I typically prepare for about eight hours. Yeah. We're not talking 80 minutes, 30 minutes. And, and mind you, I do this, I could do this in my sleep, right? But I prepare for eight hours. And what do I prepare on? I think about, there, there are three major things I think about. What are my most significant accomplishments in my career, period? And, you know, so if I were to organize my top three to five things where I've made impact, what are those things? What are my top three to five failures? Like, where did I really learn a lesson? And what drove that lesson? And how did I convert that lesson into a strength? 
I also think about turnaround stories. So something was going wrong and I corrected it. I made, I took it from good to great. I took it from bad to better. And so I think around that third bucket of, of the turnaround story. I also think about, especially the more senior you get, the use of data and metrics to drive decision-making and how I use that to really incorporate it into a strategy. And then the fifth piece, if it's a more senior position, strategic work period, what strategy have you implemented and, and what impact did it have and having multiple examples of those things. And so understanding my own background and really being reflective and preparing that. And then, so I do that as a baseline and then I match that to what's important to the company. So understanding the company's value systems, do they have leadership principles, operating principles, values, mission, any content that you can get from the recruiter or for the company website that tells you what they care about, right? Uh, and then matching those attributes that I have from my background, the good and the bad, to the attributes of the organization and being able to be prepared for it. So one common mistake is that candidates will repeat the same answer to multiple interviewers. And so without data showing that a candidate can flex across multiple scenarios and show how to handle it in various ways, it actually handicaps the candidate because they're, sh they're saying, look, I've only had one scenario that right. applies to five questions. Right. And so it can either be due to lack of preparation or lack of experience. And regardless, it's not a good outcome for the candidate. Right. Those are amazing. I think those are phenomenal tips. That inventory, you have to do it. You have to. Yes. And, and you know, many people are surprised when I say eight hours. Like yeah. it's eight to 10 hours easily. And, and I do this all day long. So yeah. mind you, I'm more fluid in what to do, what to ask, how to prepare. So for someone who isn't as fluid, I would say the more you want the job, the more you should prepare. Right. And I'm, I will say also in your prepare, 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 I would also say role playing and having someone ask you questions, you know, a trusted friend, uh, partner, colleague that you you know someone that you trust but I, I think there's nothing that replaces that you thought it you've written it now you have to say it and can you say it succinctly can you say it in a way that is meaningful and that shows your best value yes and how many times have we walked away from interviews and going oh yes I should have given that example of x right well the preparation helps avoid that totally. because you can prepare your responses and then truncate, let's say you prepare 15, you know, different scenarios. You can truncate those 15 scenarios to 15 keywords that now you know, right? You could say, hey, in this situation, I'm going to re reference Project Everest and I'll know, you know, right. I'm going to give right. this example. Right. Or in this situation, I'm going to reference when I went through keeping a company afloat prior to bankruptcy, right? This is the example I'm going to showcase. And so that it, the examples become more fluid and roll off the tongue easier and you are less preoccupied about finding the right answer and more around telling the story of your impact in that answer. Yep. Let me put you on the spot for a minute and ask you when you think about your mistakes and your failures and you think about yeah. those situations that you had a great lesson can you share mm -hmm. one personally that you faced or what that meant to you and, and how you rebounded? If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. Sure, gosh, great question. I think as I look at failures, probably there's one big theme that I've realized for me. Uh, for those that know me, know that I lead from the front. I lead with courage. I'm one of those people who's like, let's do it, let's get it done. I lead my team to believe that they can do more than they ever thought they could do. That's just who I am. Let's make it happen. Let's figure it out. We're smart people. We're gonna, we're gonna make this work. And what I've learned over the years, particularly um, you know, as I've grown as a leader, is that the higher you get, the harder it gets. There are fewer people at the top. It takes more both 
brain power, EQ, IQ, and being able to navigate a culture than just, you know, results. Results aren't it. It's not just about results. And so if I were to look back at a situation um, where that happened, I would say, I'd give you an example. I worked in a prior organization where one of my colleagues, frankly, in my opinion, was a bit uncomfortable, probably the best word, uncomfortable with the fact that I was being brought to the table as the head of TA. This colleague would prefer that I not be brought to the table and it would be, it would come through a different part of the organization. And so that trust that I had built with the business to be at the table, to talk strategy was something that this colleague was not comfortable with. And so this particular colleague felt like, well, let's find an opportunity to frankly undermine Vivian, right? Because she's being brought to the table. Why would we continue to allow that? And so in that situation, um, my lesson learned was I personally don't have time for games. It's just not who I am. And what I should have done was escalated on that human. What I did was I ignored it and not ignored it like I didn't know it was happening, but I basically tried to put it to the side, pretend it didn't exist, continue forward leading my team, delivering on results, building relationships with the business and driving the business. And in hindsight, I needed to actually address the issue, escalate the issue and remove that noise uh, because then it became a story of he said, she said, right? Yeah, yeah. And it just became a distraction. And so for me, I look back at that scenario and I said, you know what, you know, Vivian, you were, you were addressing the issue by not giving it energy, which was by design but I needed to take it a step further and actually escalate on that person who was frankly not benefiting the business. They were just distracting. Right. It was just a distraction. It was a personal distraction. But here's the thing, now I'm more aware in circumstances like that. What behavior am I exhibiting? What actions am I taking? When am I actually going to address an issue head on versus allow results and performance to prevail. And sometimes that isn't enough. Right? Yeah. The latter isn't enough. I feel like that is so powerful. And I had this epiphany the other day, and I don't know if you felt the same way being in a, a human resources professional, but I do believe that inherently there is a stereotype and there is a version of an HR professional that we're accommodating, we're collaborative, we'll do anything to meet those results. And we bend because the business or the client or the, right, your infrastructure, right, your internal, so we, we're always bending. And I had this epiphany, and it was really not that long ago, where that's been a great strength to be able to do that when you have to, but you you have to know when not to and that you have your own thought where your own point of view your own there there are times when you should not bend or that you are just as important as everybody else in the room or at the table and i don't know if to be honest with you if that's partly female or if it's this combination of being female and in human resources and what that trajectory of that profession i feel like we're in such a better place now than when i first started with how we're being uh, collaborated with and, and, and sort of that C-suite space. But I love that you gave that example because I feel like everyone has experienced that at some point. It, it's not specific to HR or, or talent professionals, right? Everyone's experienced that person and you think, I don't want to make noise. I don't want to make waves. Like, I'm just going to do my job. And sometimes that's not the answer. Yes. And, you know, and again, my lesson learned was it was actually just as much of a distraction to the organization yeah that's other human yeah, to be yeah just knocking on doors that frankly were it was just irrelevant to what we were trying to accomplish yeah right yeah but what's interesting though is i look i do believe that everything comes full circle yeah and so uh and in that situation it did yeah and i believe that you know doing the right thing being vocally self-critical doing the right thing for the organization will also will always prevail uh, and if that means that I have to walk away from situation, I will. 
you know, I'll walk away from the situation. And I think, you know, ironically in that situation, I was actually called into a room and asked for an opportunity to undermine that same human. Wow. So that was an interesting full circle moment. And I remember telling my boss, I won't do it. I said, I'm bigger than that. I'm better than that. And this was something for the organization to handle. It was not going to be a, he said, she says situation. And in that regard, you could say, well, you know, was that the right approach or wrong approach for me, my personal values? I wasn't going to do it. And even though that person was trying to undermine me, I wasn't going to do the same. You know, I still look back at that situation and it's like, on the one hand, you could argue there was, I took probably a couple reputational hits internally because the other person was trying to undermine my work. But I can still look back and say, I, while I would have escalated earlier, I wouldn't have done anything differently in the end. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. You got to know that point north, right? What's your, where's your flagpole, right? And then just Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, look, the thing is in, in corporate America, we're dealing with humans and humans are unpredictable and humans are awesome and amazing and sometimes perplexing and you know, you, you look at scenarios and like, how did we end up here? Yeah, for sure. But, but, uh, I love, I mean, I love what I do. I love talent acquisition and, and as a leader, you're constantly sort of sharpening that saw and learning how to get better, how to navigate better. Yeah. And again, it's not always about results. I wish people could see you because you've been smiling throughout this entire <laughs> interview, which I love. And obviously your, your passion and your enthusiasm comes through for sure. So it's so so fun to hear from people that love what they do and you can just feel it. I wish people could see you too, but tell me just a little bit about your move because to me, I think you've been, you were in the DC area for a really long time and you have kids and, you know, I think about that sometimes if if things have come up or opportunities and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't, it's so overwhelming. The idea of just uprooting this whole situation and, and going somewhere else. So tell me, how much of a risk was that for you? Was it scary going from a security of a bigger organization? Like how much of this was like you taking a big leap and feeling like you you were trying to shake things up? So I'll tell you, when I got the call from Chewy, it was the first call I ever took from my last company. So I had not entertained any other role. Mm-hmm. And as conversations progressed, the fit just continued to seem like a really strong fit. I decided at this age and stage of my career, I was going to be my natural self, my authentic self, who I am. I know who I am. I know what I'm not. And the conversations just seemed like things were clicking and connecting, um, which was great. Once I made the decision to move forward and obviously uh, Chewy decided they were interested in me and I was decided I was interested in them. It was a big decision. I made a decision in the height of the pandemic to change jobs, relocate cities, change my son's school, he's in elementary school, and um, knowing it would impact my husband's job as well. I mean, that was a pretty big shift. Yeah, it's huge. And I have two older daughters, and I knew that I would have them remaining in the D.C. area, you know, and, and they're older, but still, right, we would be splitting the family. So it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. But ultimately, here's here's sort of the framework that I operated under. I asked myself, is this of benefit to the entire unit that is my family? Right. And the answer was yes. I asked myself, could I put support systems around my older girls as well as my son so that they would be successful? And I realized, yes, I could. And then I had to make decisions of what I could or could not do personally to just make the move palatable, right? Um, just the simple act of relocating is challenging enough, much less selling a home, buying a home and all of that. And so I decided to break up the problem into manageable parts, right? I put a hold on selling the home. I put a hold on buying the home. I decided I could make the move. I could make the change of jobs, the change of schools. And some of those other pieces had to wait, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I set up a schedule of, in X time frame, I'll do these pieces and, and then I would defer these other pieces until later. And frankly, that's what we have to do as leaders at work, right? Yeah. 
if we were to fix all problems tomorrow, frankly, half of the leadership team in this country would not be needed. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. th that's why you need leaders to prioritize problems, solving problems, driving those problems, creating systemic solutions for the long term. And so for me, I broke up the problem into manageable parts. I deferred some things. I prioritized other areas. And net, net, it's been an awesome move for me. I have no regrets. I really have enjoyed Chewy. I've enjoyed being a part of this leadership team, leading my awesome talent acquisition team. And uh, from a professional standpoint, it's been great. And a personal standpoint, it's actually worked out really well as well. And yeah, it's been awesome. Are you an animal lover? I think you'd have I to be. I am. I am. <laughs> I love their commercials. <laughs> Oh, thanks. I know. I, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating to see the evolution of pets and pet parents and how we've evolved over the last 10 years. Um, I have a, a niece who's very close to me and she was telling me, Auntie Vivian, we're going to a, a, a puppy party. And I was like, wow. You know, oh like gosh. she's graduated from college isn't uh, doesn't have children yet she's married she's married with her pup and yeah. so she and her married friends get together and you know have puppy parties and just oh, the evolution of how we interact with our animals and our pets has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years oh my gosh let me ask you this question about sort of formative experiences and i think it's it's a double question really because i think we can we can integrate them given what we've talked about so far, which is when you think back to kind of a younger Vivian, right? And you think about the path that you've navigated, and then you also think about formative experiences or events that have shaped you in terms of your path. Maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe one, right? That you think sort of stands out, whether it's something that's a challenge or a success that really I think was one of those moments. I think we all have these moments in our life that was like an intersection maybe. And sure. and and it really kind of positions you differently in the world. And then maybe sort of on the heels of that, you know, it, it sort of ties to, or it can be different, but like advice that you would give to young Vivian that it's going to be yes. all right, you know? Yes, no, great question. So, you know, as I look back, and of course, now that I'm older, you realize those moments that were shaping your value system that at the time just seemed like it was your life, right? You don't really realize that they were shaping your value system. Um, I, I look back and I came from a household of two working parents and those two working parents, their parents both did not work. So it was interesting. They were the first where they both were working parents, but they did not grow up with both of their parents working. And there, there are two things that stand out for me. One is my father was a military veteran and very early on, I mean, when I tell you I was five years old, he would pull me into a room and tell me, Vivian, you walk in a room, shoulders back, chest forward, walk in with confidence. And he literally would, would like teach me how to walk into a room. And I, of course, as a child thought, this was the most insane exercise. <laughs> I am not in the army. Like, why are you making me do this? Right. And it's funny because now people tell me all the time, wow, when you walk in a room, we know you've arrived. And I don't, it, it's not something that I try. It's something that's natural, but I look back and I realize, wow, my dad was making me do this, you know, literally this army march as a young child that later shaped. Yeah. how I walk into a room. And, you know, as I look at my mother, who um, also came, you know, both of my parents came, came from very poor means, frankly, uh, and they both defied the odds. They defied the odds of where, where their life, you know, at least the, the script suggested they should land. Right. And so when I was a child, my parents expected a ton out of me. Um, talk about using data, true story. My mother would pull out her report card every report card season and show me her data of all of her A's and her expectations of me. True wow. story. Up to this day, she still has them. And so she would show me and validate to me what she expected of me out of school. And I was always expected to perform 
at a higher level. And so in a lot of ways, I just had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> I had no choice, Teresa, I had no choice. <laughs> um, but, uh, but with that strong discipline and with those high expectations, it then became who I was, right? And they say your formative years are really around somewhere between what, age eight to 14. Right. Yep. And so by high school, I had my own standards, right? I wanted to make sure that I was doing well and that I was accomplishing things and that I was, you know, achieving those success factors in school and with my grades, as well as, you know, in participating in a lot of clubs and leading those things as well. And so that early upbringing really carried through my schooling and beyond. Mm-hmm. And it really was about high standards and not accepting average. That was how I was raised. And then candidly, where I'm from, I'm from the U.S. Virgin Islands. And in that environment, our leaders were our people. Mm-hmm. And so it was common that the you know people in the position of power, the governors, the legislature, the the doctors, the lawyers were all friends and family members. And so it was an expectation that you will lead, you can lead, you should lead. And, you know, it's your choice whether you do it or not. And so the, the combination of those two things, frankly, led me to where I am today. I feel like that's so interesting. You, you said something about how it eventually evolved from being their expectations to yours. And I feel like that's so interesting. We could probably spend a whole hour on that. (laughs) In that, you know, I think a lot of people, there's friction when you're those ages of 8 to 14, right? Of, Of you trying to find out who you are and set your own limits and boundaries and separate from them, right? And some someone could say, your dad doing that to you at five years old, like that's a bit much, right? So you could have this alternative. Ex- I would have agreed with right. them. <laughs> I don't know. It's so fascinating. Like some of these things that, you know, obviously as parents, we're trying to teach our kids, but just certainly what you just described, that the you don't always get the value or the lesson until much later. You know, sometimes it's not even as, as early as you got it, right? But that you'll start to see, oh my gosh, this this actually is connecting back to this experience that, you know, I had and I was taught something that ends up being a life lesson. I love those. Yeah, examples. and you know, I, I look back I look back at those intangible lessons, right? I was I was taught early on to persist and be disciplined when others stop. Mm. And to stop and let go when others persist. Hmm. There is such an art to that. Oh my right? gosh. There's such an art to knowing when to let something go and not give it energy and when to push and not stop in the face of adversity. And we don't always make perfect choices right. there, but that blend of being able to do both of those things, that's the art. Dude, that's amazing. That's great. One last question and it's self-serving, but I'm going to ask it because I can and I have you. You're trapped. Is <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, around soft skills development. And my passion for this platform and being able to talk about important skills that will help our people develop, uh, those that are early in their career. And, and as a leader, uh, I think you and I have even talked about this, you know, friendly uh, in, in prior conversations, just about leadership and young talent and emerging talent and what we're seeing. I'm curious, from your perspective, what would be one of the more critical soft skills that you think is important for people to be spending time developing. We know that people are spending a ton of time technically developing, right? You see kids coming out of school with these GPAs that are insane, um, you know, taking all the classes, they're, you know, t- doing all the internships. It's like everything is getting checked off, yet I find that there's this whole sphere of skills that's being um, not ignored, but certainly there's not the same type of rigor or discipline or learning that's happening. So I'm curious from your perspective, which one or you know a couple that you would pick out there are two that stand out as you ask that question number one is the ability to read a room mm-hmm. yeah so every single person no matter how early or late in career you're in you should take a conscious point of 
reading the room. I always tell my leaders and my team, those in power are not necessarily ones with the highest title. So you need to read the room to understand who's driving the strategy, who is being listened to, who is closing the door on an idea, on an opportunity, on a plan, and why. And so the ability to read the room will help you better navigate. Mm -hmm. And that's an important skill. And that room and the climate in the room can change day to day, it could change week to week, it could change month to month. But in my mind, the idea is to understand the pattern, right? So if I go simply to like third, fourth, fifth grade math, I remember when it finally clicked for me and actually math was one of my favorite subjects, but when it clicked for me, wait a minute, I don't need to understand this equation. I need to understand the pattern of how to solve the equation. And then I can solve every equation thereafter, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Understanding that pattern is what matters and the methodology of how to solve a math problem. The same thing happens in organizations. Once you start to see the pattern and the methodology of how decisions are made, how the environment changes and what drives that organization to either continue down a path or pivot or do an about face, then you can better predict how to navigate it. So that's, I think, number one. Number two is thought leadership. So um, there can be incredibly brilliant individuals on the team. And those individuals can either lead through how to solve a problem or how to address an issue with thought leadership, or they can react to someone else's opinion how to solve it and provide intellectual horsepower on that mm-hmm. solution. Mm-hmm. I would advocate that, you know, especially early in career professionals, that they practice brainstorming. If I had to solve a problem, what would I do? How would I go about it? What research would I make? How would I learn? If it's something I don't know about, how do I teach myself? And really practice that brainstorming. Because the higher you get in an organization, the organization is seeking thought leadership. They're not just seeking, the organization is not just seeking execution and delivery of results based on what someone else says to do. And so that thought leadership, being able to say no, being able to have a point of view, being able to pivot a conversation to say, look, I understand your point of view here, but let me tell you the pros and cons of your method and let me give you an alternative and really being grounded on why. That thought leadership is super important and being comfortable and grounded in your point of view. I love that. And I feel like there's opportunities for people to do that at all levels, right? Even if you're not in in corporate world yet, right? You can practice those skills. And part of why I'm doing a lot with some interns now is I feel like I have this really cool little lab (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to help people be in these positions and it's not super high stakes you know some things are higher stakes than others but being able to practice that you know you got to be able to practice it and try it yes. out and it's not easy what you're describing is is those are mature skills i think yet if you practice them and you put yourself out there those are those both i think are kind of putting yourself aside Right. And you're and you're kind of learning. I mean, the read the room thing, we say that to our kids all the time, all the time. I say read the room because I have three boys and they're not very I'm sorry to all the boys and men out there, but you're just not great at it. You haven't spent a lot of time. doing. Not all of you. I won't I won't say everyone, but the, at least most that I know, they weren't taught to read the room. Right. And so some of us have that instinctively. I think that's such a great one. And then on the thought leadership side. It's being able to recognize those moments, taking them and then trying to provide something there. I think those are great. You are just a dream. Oh, Teresa, you are too kind. It's always a pleasure <laughs> chatting with you. It's fun. I loved this. I feel like we got such great information and you were so nice to share so much insight and help. I think people are going to really benefit from this conversation and Chewy's lucky to have you and I'm lucky to call you friend and I'm just so appreciative that you spent time with us doing this. So thank you. Anytime. Absolutely. You know, I think if I could leave, I could leave with these closing thoughts. Yeah. I really do believe that each one should teach one, right? If each one teaches one, we all get into a better place. And so 
I encourage my leaders, my peers, you know, take one person under your wing. And if everyone does that, the magic of that scaling and amplifying and helping another. And I remember actually you and I have a mutual contact, your former intern who I also know. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to that young lady, look, you can pull someone under your wing and teach them what you've learned, right? Yeah. You don't have to be senior in your career to teach. Everyone can learn from everybody. And so if, if all can take on someone to mentor and help them get better, then we collectively get better. Damn Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Viv. I loved what you said about resume and interview prep, that it's okay to talk enthusiastically about your accomplishments. And in fact, being able to talk impact of those accomplishments. You mentioned being targeted in your job search and the power of network. I also appreciate that we got an inside look into the world of talent acquisition. Thank you, Missy, for producing this episode, and thank you to our relatable community and listeners. We're so thankful for your support and listenership. If you get a moment, please subscribe to the Relatable Podcast, rate us, and leave comments. We can be found on your favorite listening platform. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.